Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 139, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And hello, if you are listening on Spotify. Oh. <laughs> We're finally on there. Finally listed on Spotify. This is fantastic news. So you can get us on multiple devices on all networks now. I did have a guy last week, you know, when I played the sound effect, he goes, uh, your show's turning into Steve Wright in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Spotify is something that we've been trying to get on for, what, probably about two years now? Yeah, because it was, it, it was a kind of curated list, so they picked yeah. the podcast, which is... Really nice of them to consider us. Yeah, and it's got, yeah, they do. They, they kind of look at podcasts that are going to fit into the rest of their catalogue and what's going to complement them. And we've already got a big about new provider, Audio Boom, for helping us get on there as well. Now, we did say this on last week's show. Um, I know people dip in and out of episodes, but you do need to change over your RSS feeds if you need to do it manually. Um, or if you listen on SoundCloud at the moment, you need to start using Audio Boom. So I think there was still about like 3,000 people listening on SoundCloud last weekend. If you listen on like iTunes or Google Play or most apps, it should change over on its own, but, you know, the show is hosted now on Audio Boom, and we're going to phase SoundCloud out in the next couple of months. Yeah, but and if- we're going to repeat this a lot because not everybody listens to every episode. Yeah. So they'll be like, oh, <laughs> why has it disappeared? <laughs> By December, when we come off SoundCloud, I want, like, two people to be listening on there, not, not like <laughs> not like 3,000. So, uh, yeah, we'll put all that information if you need to change your RSS feeds. Like I said, for most people... Your apps will do it. Your mobile apps will all do it automatically. You know, we're working with those at the moment. But if you need the feeds manually, all you've got to do is head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, what a show we've got this week. A topic that actually is very close to my heart, but not really something that we've covered on this podcast a lot, actually, quite amazingly. Yeah, so we're talking to Bill Rebock, and Bill is, like, fantastic. He worked for Atari, and his kind of job was hunting down the games for the Jaguar. Yeah. So, you know, he got Doom, which was just an amazing port, and Alien vs. Predator. But then he also went on to work with uh, the new one. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, what, what is the new one, then, for people that might not know? Well, the new one was a, a DVD kind of gaming system, and a lot of Atari X staffers joined there, and tried to make this new universal DVD format that you could play games on. So we're going to cover that and we're going to cover stuff like the legendary Atari Falcon. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, a lot of people think of me and you as Amiga fanboys, which admittedly we are. Uh, But, I mean, the, the Atari Jaguar is the only console I collect for. I'm an Amiga fanboy, but when I saw a Falcon and the video playback on there, I, I knew I knew that that was better than the uh, Amiga 1200's video playback. So you couldn't deny that. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is about Atari, it was, it was a really interesting company. And they went through so much change as well. And normally, what I really like about this interview with Bill is... When you normally hear podcasts talking about Atari or YouTube videos and that, they're always going to know about the Atari 2600. Or the arcade era, you know. Yeah, it's, it's all like, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, but really, the bit that really interests me is that bit in the middle after Chatter Mill took over and, you know, it, they went into computers. They were really a business computer company for yeah, a few totally. years. Yeah, totally. Like uh, Bill Rebuck, when he started, he was doing desktop publishing, yeah. you know, and that's not the route you'd expect to get into Atari. Well, the Atari ST had the nickname, you know, the, the Jackintosh. It was essentially, you know, a lot of people saw it as a low-cost Apple Mac alternative. Mm. It had a really good high-res monitor that you could do desktop publishing on and obviously had some good games on there as well. Later on, the Lynx, you know, one of the best handhelds at the time. Probably was. I actually got a Lynx last week, so I'm getting up to speed on that catalogue now as well. And then the Jaguar, which really was one of the biggest techno tragedies of the early 90s really uh, a lot of things went against it but i mean as you'll hear in this interview john carmack actually loved it so much he sat down did his own doom engine on it and 
you know, at the time it had the best console version of Doom. Yeah, it? yeah, and we also find out about stuff like connections with Sony and with Next and yeah. stuff that you really did not expect. So you're going to enjoy this one, folks. Yeah, so do hang around. Bill Raybuck, the story of Atari in the 90s, is our special guest on the Retro L podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get into that, we have got a little competition this week as well. Well, this is a story of the rival company, isn't it? <laughs> so this is the inside story of Commodore by XMD David Pleasance. Now, obviously, we've had David on the show before. I mean, you and I are good friends with David. We're uh, hanging out with him the other weekend. He was playing his guitar, wasn't he, at um, one of our friends' birthday parties? Yeah, rocking some flamenco. He was. And uh, we're actually going to be with him this weekend as well in Cambridge um, at the Computer Museum in Cambridge for their Retro Computer Festival. Now, admittedly, it's a bit short notice, but that's going to be happening tomorrow at the time the show comes out on the 15th and 16th of September. Loads of stuff going on if you're near Cambridge this weekend. We're going to be there tomorrow on Saturday. David's going to be there as well all weekend signing his book because the official launch of the book is actually on Monday coming up. That's when they're going to be sent out to everybody. Now, when we had David on our podcast, that was probably about two years ago now we last had him on the show. But he was talking about the fact that he was writing this book it's took him, you know, a year of blood, sweat and tears. And it's written. You yeah. know, I, I've actually been reading some of it and uh, I must say it's absolutely fantastic. I've heard a lot of these tales from David before when he's been drinking. But, After a few glasses of wine. Yeah, yeah, totally. David doesn't drink. <laughs> but um, there's some fantastic stuff. Like, it's not just David in this book. There's yep. lots of contributors. And I'd say, I'd, I'm only halfway through, but I absolutely love... RJ Michael's um, chapter is just insane. Now, that took RJ probably about six months to write it, I think. And again, after he'd done it, he was really proud of it and he reckons it's the best thing he's ever written. Yeah, and he flips the whole story on its head. Yeah. Completely flips it on his head. And there's so many different perspectives. Uh, it kind of draws a, a picture of Commodore that we never had before. Well, that's the whole aim of this book is, you know, there's been obviously books like Brian Bagnall's series of books that are really good. Um, kind of a, an external commentator looking at Commodore as a company. But it's the first book that's been written by, well, actually a group of people who were there right in the centre of it all and working there as well. So that's kind of the idea of this book. If you want to get, like, you know, as the title suggests, the inside story about what really happened. I mean, I was reading Dave Haney's chapter the other day that's, like, really in-depth. He tells a lot of good stories yes, in there. It's, it's like, you know, people in the company who are engineers yeah. and artists and stuff like this. And it, it kind of, you know, they all have their own angle. And they're not just like the people that you've probably heard stories from a million times before on like, you know, podcasts and YouTube. There's a, a chapter in there by Gail Wellington, who was like a, the head of the developer community, Cats, um, and Beth Richards, who worked on stuff like the um, the unreleased CD1200 drive that we actually did a little documentary on a couple of years ago on YouTube. Yeah, and I'd say David doesn't hold back in this. No. Um, <laughs> not at all. So, uh, you know, there's some really, really interesting stories there. So to celebrate the launch of the book, um, we're actually giving you a chance to win a couple of copies of it for free. Now, not only will you get a hardback copy of Commodore The Inside Story, uh, signed by the man himself, but also will include the accompanying Blu-ray disc as well, which, um, now I work with David on the Blu-ray. It's actually an interview that I conducted with him. The original idea was that it was going to be like a, an hour long. It's turned out it's about an hour and 40. There's a lot in there. And he, he actually remembered some stories after we'd done it. So there's about half an hour's worth of extra bits on there too. Oh, wow. We've got a, a documentary by Kim Justice all about Jack Tramiel. So really you're getting about three and a half hours worth of video footage. I can't wait footage. to see that. It's really, really, impre really impressed with the way it came out. Um, again, got to thank our Waveland Studio, Steve Fletcher, who filmed it all and put all that together. And also you will get a copy of Everybody's Girlfriend on CD. 
Which was a, a kind of a strange thing where David made an Amiga-based band, right, that kind of sang songs about Amigas. Well, and, uh... this came out, yeah, it was after the Amiga, um, after Commodore closed down, he made an album in, I think it was 1995. And I don't know if you people do remember seeing him at, like, you know, Amiga shows, like, you know, selling it, like, the year after Commodore went under. And essentially it was an ode to the Amiga, yeah, an entire album. It's, uh, it's not computer music, but I think he used an Amiga 4000 to tie all the studio together and there's like a, a track on there dedicated to Jay Minor and yeah. this has been out of print since 1995 but he's actually got them repressed again so if you've never heard the album it's actually a really good listen so we'll give uh, a few copies of that away as well so essentially what you'll win is copy of the book copy of the Blu-ray and the CD as well and we've got a few CDs for runners up as well so if you want to win, all you've got to do is head to our website at some point in the next seven days. Now, theretrohour.com, you'll find a little form there. Um, fill in your details, no question or anything like that. Just put your name in there, your email address. And uh, we're going to close the competition next Friday night. So that'll be Friday the 21st of September at midnight. Uh, after that next day, we'll pick out a few winners at random from uh, a ran- randomly generated list. We'll get back in touch with you. If you're selected, you'll win a copy of the book, Blu-ray and CD. So you can get the entry form and all the terms and conditions right now on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we'd like to thank our donators, because without our donators, this show doesn't go ahead. You know, we've kind of got costs and, oh God, websites. I, I'm, I'm doing the new website at the moment, actually, and uh, it's actually progressing, isn't it? <laughs> like we've been saying that for about six months, but we yeah, are getting yeah. there. We're slowly <laughs> we are. getting there. Uh, but again, I mean, we said this the other week, it's really for the cost of a cup of coffee once a month. You could keep this podcast going into 2019. We've got some very big plans for the next 12 months of the show. So uh, your support is really, really appreciated. So thank you so much. If you've made a donation, and any amount, big or small, all you've got to do is head to our website. You'll find PayPal and their cryptocurrency links on the front page of theretrohour.com. And for doing that, you will find your place on a high score table, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like... Greg Girk. Magnus Espiona. Richard Legg. And Christopher Nelson, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Now, before our Atari special with Bill Raybuck, we've got a few stories we just want to cover this week. Uh, did you ever think that you would see Portal on the Commodore 64? <laughs> no, I, I did not. And uh, it's interesting because Portal's a 3D game. Yeah. And this is a, a side-on Kind of a platformer. Yeah. Well, I mean, Portal, anyone that has played, like, puzzle games over the last decade will know about that game. Uh, By Valve, two games in the Portal series. I'm a big fan of Portal, actually. I think they're great games. I think they're great. I did get a bit travel sick from them, but I think they're great, and I love the music as well. The cake is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is, I mean, obviously a very, very famous game. But now, this is a little tweet that we spotted during the week by uh, Jamie Fuller. There's a few guys involved in this as well. Del Seymour, who's a very good Commodore 64 uh, graphics artist. They've actually done a very faithful 2D side-on game of Portal on the C64. Now, there's a little um, clip they released on Twitter. It's only about a minute long, but it shows you a bit of the gameplay. And looking at it, all the physics are kind of there. So, you know, with Portal, you shoot like... It's like a blue one, isn't it? And a red portal. Yeah. And you walk through one, you come out the other side. And, you and, it, get and it transports you to different parts of the room or, or kind of, yeah. And you get blocks and different stuff that can surfaces, fall through it yeah. and all that. You've got to get around walls and that kind of thing. So from this really small clip that we've seen, they do demonstrate that, you know, shooting a portal into a wall, coming out another part of the level and that kind of thing. <laughs> That's so cool. So it looks like it'll actually work really well. So they've had 
Atari for the 2600, Portal for the C64. When are we going to get, like, Crisis for the Spectrum? <laughs> That's what I need to know. You know someone's going to take up that challenge now. Yeah. Jim Bagley will be listening. Yeah. Oh, hang on a minute. So, I mean, we've always said on the show, we love it when games that really should not be on these platforms eventually turn up on there. And the thing about it is, I mean, companies like Valve, I imagine, will look at this and be like, oh, that is neat. The very yeah, rarely yeah. get RC oh, about it, do they? love that, yeah. And apparently there's even a little rumour that it might have uh, mouse controls on there as well. So oh, nice. if the joystick you're thinking, how's that going to be quick enough to do these kind of uh, intricate puzzles? But yeah, that's really cool to see Portal on like an old school system. So we'll keep an eye on that. And when we get a release date, we'll, we'll of course let you know. Probably have a little play on YouTube as well, no doubt. Another game that um, was actually from back in the day that we never thought would see the light of day. Obviously, Cygnosis, what a company they were. Cygnosis were absolutely huge, and they were such a good publisher on the kind of Amiga, on the Mega Drive, and then they moved on to the PlayStation, and they were one of the only companies that moved on to the PlayStation that kind of still kept relevant and did amazingly cool titles like... um, Wipeout, obviously. Wipeout, yeah. of course, but really fun stuff like Shipwrecked as well. And I've been playing quite a lot of early Cygnosis games, Destruction Derby. Yeah, yeah, yeah all, all of those. Well, this game was called Hardcore, and it was basically lost. It was it was uh, created by Dice. Um, like digital Illusions, actually. Yes, Someone yes. said that to me the other day. They were like, um, you know, I was talking to someone else, and he said, uh, I didn't realise that Digital Illusions are, like, Dice are still going today. And I'm like, yeah, they were the guys that made, like, pinball dreams and pinball fantasies and stuff like that but a lot of people don't realize that they're actually the same company no been going since 1992 so it's well uh, well they made this game in uh 94 and it was supposed to come out for the amiga sega mega drive and the mega cd yeah but then they put it on hold because they wanted to shift focus to the playstation so they had like maybe 90 percent of it done it was in that transitional period wasn't it yeah and you know 2d platformers were not the popular thing to be doing then. No. So they, they'd totally forgotten it. Um, but now this company is reviving it, strip, Strictly Limited Games, and they're saying, we intend to finish the game, and we want it to be played how it was meant to be played. So they're getting the original developers, and they're talking to them, and they're adding missing levels in there, and they're basically making everything beautiful and handled with care, so you can get the uh, best possible experience. And... Hardcore was supposed to be quite a, a good game. If you remember stuff that came out at the time, oh, what was that one, Assassin? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of got that look as well, but then it, it seems to have a, a bit of a Turrican look as well. Yeah, the gun me. control reminds me of Turrican too. And there's also a bit in there about, remember Alien Alien 3, that game, the platformer? Yeah. A lot of it kind of reminds me of that kind of look as well, but... But then it's got that, like, metally kind of beautiful look that you had on, like, Leander or on... Um, brutal uh, sports deluxe, you know, the uh, Speedball 2. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's got that kind of beautiful look. Um, but they're saying it's basically going to be released in 2019 on the PS4. Yeah. And on the PlayStation Vita, which is pretty cool. Yeah, the Vita doesn't get a lot of love these days, actually. No, no. Um, but that is awesome. The fact that they've found this game that was kind of lost in time makes you wonder, because, I mean, you know, you're right there. That was such a change over time, wasn't it? Like, kind of between... Amiga, Mega Drive, Super Nintendo, and then PS1. They kind of changed everything, and so many companies fell by the wayside. I mean, we did a panel with uh, Mike Montgomery, the Bitmap Brothers, didn't yeah. we, at Play Expo a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that, you know, they, they just couldn't really keep up. It was like it was development the, costs It was the same and, with Sensible as yeah. well, you know, uh, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, that project really kind of uh, held them back, and I guess maybe wise decisions like dropping 
this title might have uh, saved them for, well, I mean, for a while until they got enveloped by um, what was it? Sony. Uh, yeah. Sony. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, because a bit my brothers, um, Mike was saying that by the time they got you know Chaos Engine two released onto the market, they sold like a few hundred copies. It was like not yeah, yeah, because it's like four thousand copies. Yeah, or it wasn't very it was, many at all, yeah. and they lost a lot of money on it. And looking at it. It's it was a bad timing thing, really, wasn't it? With hardcore, had that game come out in like '92, that would be on the level of like something like Turrican Name, I yeah, um, or Strider or something. You know, it yeah. looked really cool. And the fact they're doing it for the Mega Drive as well, you know, it wasn't just like a, a yeah, a Mega game. CD, you know, yeah. yeah. So very interesting to see it. I'm looking forward to playing it. Actually, it does look a really fun game. Uh, so cool. Wanna... I just need to get a PS4 now. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna buy one just for this game. Yeah? <laughs> no, probably a Vita. <laughs> yeah, you can get those in CX for about ninety quid. Well, I think it's probably going to the Vita as well because a lot of people use emulation stuff on yeah. the Vita, and it would just fit in nicely with that. You could probably run an Amiga emulator oh, on there can. and then switch over to hardcore. You know, I think that's all anyone uses a Vita for these days hack it to death Although I would like to see this on the Switch I think that would be good on the virtual oh, yeah. console on yeah, the Switch that would be awesome a really good fit actually so if you want to check out the trailer I'll put that in this week's show notes and everything else that we've been talking about at theretrohour.com now just one more story before we get into our interview with Bill Raybock all about Atari in the 90s this caught my attention in the week apparently you can no longer get your PlayStation 2 repaired in Japan yeah this is absolutely crazy like you know, the PlayStation 2 was released in 2000. Yeah. and 18 years ago. 18 years ago, and they've been keeping this repair service alive in Japan. I would think that Sony would have dropped something like that because they wanted them to all break so people would upgrade. Yeah. You know? You wouldn't imagine they want you to keep a PlayStation 2. Surely they'd rather you got bought a PS4 these days. I mean, you can buy a new one for 20 it's, quid. It's, it's <laughs> mad, though. The uh, Japanese PlayStation Clinic has yeah. uh, shut down. But I, I just can't believe that. Maybe, maybe it was so popular in Japan because it was the first DVD system. Yeah. And that may be why people are keeping them alive because it was the cheapest DVD to get at the time, wasn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, it, the PlayStation 2 is outright the biggest selling games console of all time. Yeah. And... You know, there are millions of them out there, millions and millions of them. I mean, that's one of the good things about the PlayStation 2. It is actually a really good system if you want to get into retro collecting. It is, and you can install a hard drive on there. And you could also play backups, but I used to see some ridiculously crazy stuff back in the days. There was this one where you replace the CD front, and you basically had this slot in there, then you put a credit card in, pulled it right so it kind of locked onto the thing and then forced the CD drawer open. That sounds healthy. And then put the disc in and closed it. And that was sold as like a, a kit for your PlayStation. It was crazy. I remember some people would get the, uh, a kit where you'd slice the top of the PlayStation open to do the swap trick on the fat PlayStation. You yeah, open it yeah, because I, I remember some people had like top lids yeah. on them as well and stuff. Yeah, crazy. Maybe that's trip? why they need repairing because <laughs> people have been ripping them to bits all these years. But, you know, the, the reaction on Twitter, a lot of people have been like, oh, you know, they've, they've pulled the plug in it now as well. One guy tweeted here, he goes, as of today, the PS2 and I have got something in common. We both died. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, the fact that... I'd just be like, why were they doing it? Why were they still spending money on repairing a, a console that's so old? But apparently they weren't doing... 
PS3 and PS Vita repairs still, only PS2, which is like, is that when the PlayStation <laughs> 2 outlived the PS3? Which Maybe they really just like forgot it. about this department and there's these guys just working around, like, have we still got a job? I don't know, it's 2017, let's, <laughs> let's see. Well, they've got 155 million PlayStation 2s out there. I suppose that's quite a lot to repair, isn't it, yeah, if anything goes yeah. wrong? But as of now... Rest in peace, PS2. I'm sure we've we've said that on the show about four times it's, now. It's, it's it mad, though. I, I still find this crazy. It's like, what, was Sony trying to cement the reputation of the PS2? It's like already sold worldwide massively. Yeah. There's no need. About time they let it go. But yeah. I still find my PS2, but it is such a great console, isn't it? But the thing about it is, I, I, I don't think I'll probably ever play every PlayStation 2 game, even that I own in my life, let no. alone. Yeah. So you can get them for so cheap. I mean... I was at like a game shop the other day and they're selling them off for like 20p. All I'm saying is Burnout Takedown. That was oh. such a good game. My cousin's little boy, I guess he's like my half-cousin, um, he's only like six years old and they've given him a PS2 because he's like, they thought he was a bit young to get like a modern system. But we were playing that game the other day, actually. So, you know, he's a big PS2 fan, so I always enjoy going around and playing. Oh, it, yeah, I love the Burnout series. What, what a console. So uh, thank you for checking out all the news in this week's podcast. We'll have more for you next Friday. If you are coming along to a Cambridge, we are going to be at the Retro Computer Festival this weekend. Uh, we'll put links on our Facebook and Twitter at Retro Hour UK. Uh, don't forget, if you need to uh, manually listen to this week's show, do an audio boom. Not SoundCloud. We're moving you over there. Uh, find all those links and everything else we talked about this week and you'll get all that on our website theretrohour.com right then let's get into the story of Atari in the 90s talking about the Jaguar the Falcon the Lynx lots of stuff you've not heard about before with this week's special guest Bill Raybuck you're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest it is one for the Atari fanboys this week please welcome to the show Bill Raybuck, thank you for joining us. Hi, Ravi and Dan. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, um, obviously, we did mention uh, in the lead-up to this that we are both big fans of the Jaguar and the Falcon and systems like that that we, we can't wait to get some stories from from you. I mean, before you started working at Atari, I mean, how much of an Atari fan were you? Um, well, that was the, the home computer that I kind of grew up on um, back in 1978. Um, to, to date myself a bit. One of my friends in high school, um, his neighbor ran security at McCormick Place and the Consumer Electronics, Summer Consumer Electronics Show was going on. And um, we had kind of gotten invited, recruited to do a little summer job work to um, work at McCormick Place and help out with uh, the Consumer Electronics Show. And we were assigned, fortunately, or you know, just by, by fate, I guess, to help out with the Atari booth and, and it was make sure that nothing get you know, nothing's getting stolen during the night or whatever. But the, the folks from Atari had said that if we wanted we could play on, you know, some of the computers that were there or, you know, the Atari twenty six hundred systems that they had set up. Star Raiders had just gotten introduced. And I wound up playing Star Raiders for, I don't know, many, many, many hours across the, you know, the course of the evening. Mm. Make a long story short, came back the following day after I had gone home, cleaned up, and was able to play the game, kind of demoing it all during the course of the show. At, at the end of it, uh, my friend and I were given by the Atari guys as kind of a, you know, hey, they're breaking down the booth, and here, you guys can have a couple of these. 
so that was my first Atari 800. Oh, and, wow. and that was my friend's uh, first Atari 800 also. During college, um, I became an Atari developer. As things progressed, I realized that this whole Atari thing with the um, SLM 804 laser printer um, for the Atari ST was, was a pretty amazing setup. And I had a uh, consulting business, mainly PC-focused, selling things like Ventura Publisher, which was a really, really expensive piece of software for the PC, but based on um, DRI's gem version of the operating system for, for the PC. So I was very familiar with, with gem in the first place on, on the PC side of things, but had a lot of clients that also wanted you know the kind of tried and true WordPerfect and Microsoft Word and, and such. Um, and for those customers, I introduced them to the Atari computer because um, a 520ST um, with the SLM804 was cheaper than buying a PC with um, Ventura Publisher, of course. It had that lovely high-res screen mode as well, didn't it, that was good for DTP? Uh, the little the 10-inch or 12-inch uh, black and white. Uh, paper white monitor was yeah. fantastic, right? And it was, a, and and it was, you know, like half the price of of an Apple, you know, because it, Atari had chosen um, an MS MS DOS file format for the floppy disks. Um, it was very easy for people to take the disk from the PC and pop it in the uh, pop it in the Atari. And then be able to do their desktop publishing over there. That's one thing people often forget: just how expensive PCs and Macs were around that time. Oh, exactly. And and I was selling, you know, I was selling among you know the first PC clones, um, you know, back back in the day, and um, and uh, often I would order PCs from PCs Limited, which was the precursor to Dell. Right, so I, you know, I'm <laughs> unbeknownst to me at the time, I'm ordering computers from Michael Dell in his dorm room, you know, in in Texas, right? Um, but but they were still very expensive compared to the cost of of the Atari, as well as ease of use and everything else, right? So so I had clients that would take their WordPerfect documents, move it over to the Atari, do their desktop publishing, make it look nice, do their newsletters and things like that. And and bottom line is I wound up being one of uh, one of Atari's larger value-added resellers in the U.S. Ultimately, what wound up happening was Charles Cherry, who was the head of developer relations at the time, had uh, had left Atari to take a job with um, Yoast Group, which was the beginning days of Autodesk. Antonio Salerno, um, who was his boss, gave me a call and said, you know, we were looking for somebody to head up developer relations at Atari, and your name kept coming up, um, so I thought I should give you a call. Would you be interested? And um, ultimately, you know, took the job, moved out to to California between September of 1990 and then fully moved out in February of 1991 with my wife. But as as the PC clone market kind of got more and more entrenched and um, I can remember Tremel saying, you know, it's going to get tougher and tougher because, you know, the margins are, are getting squeezed really you know, really, really skinny. Hey, let's let's go ahead and and do our last run at um, you know at a at a gaming system. Uh, the timing seemed you know seemed pretty right, and um, and that's pretty much how Jaguar was born. What's quite interesting to me there is though, you know, 
people often think back on Atari and they always talk about the game systems and kind of regard it as like a games company. But I know for a while Jack really did try and reposition it as a, a computer company for a few years in the late 80s, didn't they? Oh, yeah, very much. And, you know, and the, the, the amazing thing was um, uh, the, the team at Atari Germany, um, Alvin Stumpf and uh, Norman Kovalevsky was, was head of developer, developer relations there. And um, uh, Dr. Hans Riedel was, was also, you know, heading business relationships and, and developer, developer relations. What was, what was amazing and a lot of people don't, don't realize is that like companies like Volkswagen – had many, many Atari computers that they were doing like actual company, corporate, enterprise, you know, enterprise business work on. And I never actually saw an an issue that had allegedly been published, but supposedly um, Playboy Germany <laughs> was published on Atari computers for some for some time. <laughs> That's a claim which, to fame. <laughs> yeah, which is really you know yeah. If if you could find one of those copies, it'd be a, a heck of a collector's item, right? Well, well, you mentioned Jack there as well, and uh, kind of what was he like when you first met him? Was he quite intimidating? And what was the atmosphere like? Was it kind of a, a big family business? Um, y- yes and no. Um, I, I always had a fantastic relationship with, with Jack and Sam and, and Leonard and, uh, and Gary and everybody. Um, you know, and, and the, the thing was, was that, you know, Jack was a brilliant, brilliant guy who could arrive at a conclusion way faster than almost anybody in the room. And that was was intimidating for for a lot of people because you know he he would be kind of at the end of the story as everybody was still playing catch up right. Um, but my favorite anecdotes uh, about Jack was that shortly after I had started, uh, I was told that I I was going to be going to CBIT. You know, and I was you know the new guy had come in from Chicago. It was a situation where uh, I didn't officially have an administrative assistant, you know, quite yet or anything like that. So I arranged my travel arrangements really quick through a um, what was known at the time as a bucket shop that did discount airfares. They were sort of the equivalent of Priceline and and such, you know. But but back in the back in the 1990s, before the internet, you know, before Al Gore invented the internet, <laughs> <laughs> and. So I, I I got what I thought was a, a very good deal on a on a plane ticket um, to to get over to um, you know ultimately to Hanover and Jack wanted to know why I was making my own reservations I said well you know I was just kind of trying to scramble because there's not a lot of time and you know really quick and he he called his his admin Kathy and and said double check make sure Mr Raybach has has a great you know, is, is getting a good, good airfare, check KLM and, you know, whatever other airlines. And we, during, you know, during the five minutes that it, it took her, you know, to, to go ahead and check, you know, it was kind of the first time that Jack and I got to talk and, you know, hey, you know, hey, I grew up in Chicago and he's, you know, yeah, I grew up in Europe and through the course of the conversation had really, you know, learned what, what him and his wife had been through, you know, through Auschwitz and, and yeah. stuff like that. Kathy, oh, and then the, the funniest part about it was Jack joking, what I thought jokingly had said, you know, and by the way, if this airfare that you got is better than, than, than what we can get for you, I'm going to buy a ticket for your wife to go to. <laughs> uh, and I, and, and I was like, yeah, okay. 
And he said, but, and, and I can't remember exactly how it came out, but it was something like, and, but, but again, tongue in cheek, he says, but if you, um, if, if my airfare is cheaper, then, then you pay for the airfare or something. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and he said, are you willing to take that bet? And, you know, again, the, the cocky kid from Chicago is like, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I bet you love that though. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Right. Exactly. So, and lo and behold, my airfare was cheaper. <laughs> Thanks. So, so on my very first business trip with Atari, um, you know, you ask about, you know, was it kind of like a family business? Well, my wife got to go. <laughs> you know, so for me it was. You know, but but the other thing that was was really fascinating was the great relationship that that Sam Tremell had with like Iri Majiri from uh, uh, from from Sega for instance and you know uh, sam and i went went to tokyo um on a business meeting and you know we're meeting with the head of sega and it was so funny because you know as the video game industry progressed you know there used to be the the sort of wars between tom kalinsky at sega and howard lincoln at nintendo and things like that and you know people you know hear about how you know, Atari and businesses war and, and things like that. But it was, you know, the relationships that, um, you know, that Atari had at the highest level with these other companies was was really amazing to, to watch. Well, I mean, before we get into the Jaguar era, I mean, you know, the, the kind of the end of the computer range of Atari um, was the Atari Falcon. And we had um, Daryl Still, um, you know, formerly of Atari UK on the show yeah, last year. Yeah, absolutely. And he was saying what, you know, his jaw dropped when he saw that machine. He thought it was brilliant, but obviously it wasn't the success at a Atari hoped it would be. I mean, when did you hear about that machine originally, and what, what did you think of the Falcon? Um, well, so you know, I mean, obviously with the the TTO thirty, it was great. You know, having the the Motorola sixty eight oh thirty in that, and uh, the the VME bus expansion, which you know, a couple different companies actually, mostly in Europe, you know, built great you know extension graphics cards for and and things like that. But when the Falcon came out, it was the combination of of the sixty eight oh forty CPU. But more importantly, as well as the Motorola 56K DSP that was in there, right? And here, here was Atari making lightning strike twice. You know where where the um, original Atari 520, you know 1040 and Mega ST competed with you know with Apple. Here was the Falcon 040 was was essentially awfully close to being a next you know a next cube, you know in a in a keyboard computer you know kind of format. What was remarkable about it was the software support came from the fact that it had the 56K DSP on there and uh, the software that we got developed for it, like Falcon D2D, which was a direct-to-disc recording, you know, recording application, um, Learnout and Housebee, who were the you know, really kind of the, the trailblazers in text-to-speech and speech recognition. Um, and we had that software, you know, running on the on the Falcon. And a lot of the people in, in academia were really excited about it because it was a great computer um, at a surprisingly low price that brought sort of next-level computing performance to, you know, a great audience of programmers. You know, back at the 25th anniversary of Commodore, um, somebody in the crowd had made some kind of remark about, you know, the, the price difference and, you know, price difference and profit margins of Atari versus Apple. 
you know, Jack Tremell made the comment that, you know, the, the big thing about Atari was that um, Atari made computers affordable, or not, not Atari at the time, Commodore. Um, so back when, when Jack was CEO of Commodore, the Commodore had done a great job of making computers available to many more users because the price was so much lower than Apple. Computers right. for the masses, not the classes, I believe he used to say, didn't it? Pre- yeah. Absolutely, precisely. And and sort of that's what the Falcon was all about. You know, now the the funny thing was was that, you know, the it was just it happened to be at a time when um, the Intel four eighty six was coming along and the four eighty six with a math coprocessor and, and things like that. Um, you know, that was that, that those just wound up being so dirt cheap that it was hard for Falcon and obviously it ultimately was difficult for next to even be able to, um, to survive. But, um, you know, the, the one funny thing on that note was that we actually had had a meeting with next and this wasn't with Steve jobs at next. It was with their VP of business development or something. And, you know, and, and the comment that the guy from next had made to us at Atari was next was making, atrociously expensive hardware with a really good operating system, which incidentally is kind of what the Mac is built on today, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. because Mac came back to, you know, came back to Apple ultimately when Steve, you know, moved back over to Apple and everything. But but the comment that he made was that Next was making atrociously expensive hardware with a um, with a brilliant operating system. And Atari was building brilliantly inexpensive hardware with kind of a weird operating system because the DRI gem, you know, thing, everybody always kind of, even from a, a digital research perspective, you know, was a little bit of a head scratcher. And um, uh, Eric Smith at, at Atari was the guy that wrote the multitasking version of, of TOS, you know, which which was Mint, you know, and, and, and all that, which which was a great version of GEM for, you know, for the Atari. But like, for instance, at the end of the day, you know, the Atari had difficulty, the Atari computers had difficulty networking because the actual file, file I.O. part of part of the operating system wasn't re-entrant and things like that um, for the for the longest time. So Atari kind of had had a little bit of a late start, you know, on the networking side of things. But for, you know, for, for Next to be looking at it saying, hey, this would be kind of cool hardware to run Next OS on was was pretty, you know, pretty complimentary, right? Absolutely. Well, after the um, Falcon, obviously, Atari turned its eyes back to games consoles. Um, and originally, we had the, the Panther project, didn't we, that then turned into Jaguar. I mean, when mm. did you first hear about this, and um, how did that development kind of start? Well, I remember I remember going through the lab and having Leonard do some of the, you know, some of the original demos, you know, which, which basically were, you know, just blown everybody away. Sort of one of my favorite stories uh, about the Jaguar was the fact that you know, after I had left Atari and wound up going over to to, to Sony, um, I was talking to Yamamoto-san um, that had said that they could remember when when the Jaguar first shipped, and the folks at Sony Computer Entertainment had gotten had gotten their hands on one because we we had begun selling Jaguar through distribution in Japan in the, the in December 
when PlayStation 1 first started shipping in Japan. So they, they already had, had built PlayStation 1 and were committed to it. And then they got their hands on a Jaguar. And he said that um, Ken Kutaragi and him and the rest of the engineering team took apart the Jaguar and were shocked that, and I think the number that he used was that there were only like 42 components and that the, you know, that the Jaguar was so, so elegantly architected, you know, with the Tom and Jerry chip and, and sort of, you know, the, the Motorola 68000 was in there. But other than those three chips, basically everything else was, you know, minimal support kind of circuitry, you know. And Sony was was blown away by by a lot of the aspects of of Jaguar, right? You know, now the one thing that Jaguar didn't have was a full, you know, full fully fledged um, graphics transform engine for for doing 3D. But Jaguar also, by coincidence, was like almost the perfect hardware for Doom. Yeah. So you know, and 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 I was the guy that that kind of stumbled you know, stumbled in, you know, into to getting Doom on, on Jaguar, which was pretty cool. So did you feel that the Atari Jaguar was limited by the car? And we all know the CD system was kind of coming out later. Was there a lot of hopes for the CD add-on? Um, well, there there was, but but at the same time, you know, the, you had Nintendo that was sort of already fighting the fight about cartridge versus CD in terms of load times and things like that, right? You know, even kind of leading up to you know leading up to um, multimedia on PCs, a lot of the use of CD wound up being used for for movie playback. Um, for interstitials and for um, having a CDR soundtrack, right? Um, I mean, for instance, even Pitfall the Mayan Adventure on Windows 95, ultimately, 90% of the CD was a CD audio soundtrack that rumor had it was basically the Jaguar synth version of of the, the soundtrack just committed to you know, CDDA audio. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the interesting thing was that for, for the most part, even a lot of developers that we were working with didn't see the cartridge as that much of a limitation. Um, you know, and, and for instance, also, you know, like one of the first things that I had to deal with when, when I left Atari and went to Sony was the fact that the CD mechanisms on the PlayStation 1 were essentially getting um, worn out by Resident Evil um, because they were treating, you know, Resident Evil is a game basically treated the CD-ROM mechanism on the PlayStation 1 as a hard disk. And it, the Seeks, you know, of the CD mechanism going back and forth across the disk were literally wearing out the CD-ROM mechanism. Hmm. So, so as as Jaguar shipped, the jury was really kind of still out on how good CD was going to be. So, you know, as we were working with companies like Imagitech Designs and uh, you know the Kingsley Brothers at Rebellion, nobody was really too too worried about the the cartridge thing. And then we knew that you know, hey, we've got a CD-ROM. CD-ROM design, you know, kind of, you know, working. If if the whole CD thing really did catch on, you know, we, it could be addressed, you know, eventually. I guess developers were used to developing for like, you know, maybe two floppy disks and then having 800 megabytes to fill on a CD. It was quite 
extra resources to do that, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it it absolutely was. And and like I said, if if you look at a lot of the you know if you look at a lot of the the um, even the PlayStation One games that that first came out, a lot of them were basically cartridge games plus movie data um, as filler. Um, so it wasn't that big of a deal, right? I mean, like Jumping Flash for PlayStation One practically could have been done for Jaguar. Well, the Jag port of Doom is considered one of the best console ports just ever. Um, how did you approach it, and how, how did you get them to do such a good conversion? Well, what, what had happened was I was up at LucasArts doing a demo of Jaguar, and, and that was the meeting where I got to know Kelly Flock, who wound up being also at Sony at the same time that I was eventually. And I was doing a demo, and, and one of the guys at LucasArts was, I think he was a tester for Doom, or maybe he just had a pirated copy of, of a beta of it. Don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, he pulls me into his office and says, you got to check out this really cool new game that's, that's in development that's going to be coming out in a couple months. And, and, it was, and it was, you know, original Doom on, on PC. And I went back to the office and I cold called, um, cold called id Software down in, in Mesquite, Texas, and wound up talking to Jay Wilbur, got on a plane the following day or two, did a, you know, did a demo of Jaguar. And the one complaint that John Carmack had about Jaguar was he wished it had more RAM. He wasn't so much worried about the cartridge space, but he was he he wished it had more RAM and and at the time, you know, part of the pitch about Jaguar was that it could do kind of pretty cool procedural textures and things like that, you know, whatever. And he said, "Ah, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of, you know, big fan of that, but give me more memory and a good artist and and I can do wonders." But what was really funny is that ultimately what you know John wound up so enamored with Jaguar that he wound up taking advantage of the CRY lighting model to be able to do the really really good shading you know down the hallways in Doom which wound up actually being better than the PC version you know but but John bless his heart wrote his own compiler for the Tom chip you know he had a little kernel that that swapped code segments into Tom and you know and and you know ported the entire Doom engine to 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 Jaguar pretty handily, but the best part of the whole project was that it was like on a Friday he had submitted one of the major milestones for Doom, put it up on a server for me to download and you know I'm looking at it, and then Monday morning I had sent him an email you know with with a couple comments of, about that build of Doom and then he said oh and by the way take a look at you know, take a look at the server. There's, there's a little, you know, a little something up there for you because I had, I had put to bed the, the milestone, you know, milestone release that I sent you on Friday, and, and I put a pile of discs in my CD changer, and, um, and, and after a couple, you know, like an all nighter and a half, you'll, you'll see what I, what I built, and Wolfenstein was up there. <laughs> now we had not done a deal for Wolfenstein, right? So. Um, you know, it's like, wow, this is, so, and, it, and it was, and it, and it was fantastic. It's a right? great you version, know, I mean, great version on the jack. Yeah. So, so it was like a, you know, it was, it was, it was amazing. And, and, you know, it, for a long time, 
it was the last console version of Doom that John did because John did not do the 32X version. Sega Sega was Sega basically was forced to do the 32X version of Doom. Um, I can't remember who did the PlayStation version of Doom ultimately, but but it wasn't it wasn't John, you know. And and to my knowledge, you know, the the version of, of Doom on Jaguar was was the last console coding that John sing, you know, kind of single-handedly did for a while. That was a great advert for the Jag as well, because I remember seeing it. Obviously, we've had Rebecca Heinemann on the show before, and the 3DO version was like, you know, fraught with disaster. But when you oh, actually yeah. compared them side by side, that was the best advert for the Jag that you'd see at the time. Oh, yeah. It was, it was absolutely amazing. You know, so... Um, so that was that was that was a lot of fun and and pretty cool and and we got a great deal on Wolfenstein because um, you know it was like hey I finished the game would you you know are you interested in publishing that also right <laughs> so another title that we just can't miss out is Alien vs Predator so that was one of the main games that really attracted me to it um how, how did that work out and how did you get the deal for such a huge title. Well, so, um, so the, I can't remember, I, I don't really recall exactly how the, the licensing for it went, but, um, you know, the bottom line was, was that Atari, because of the Atari connection into Warner brothers had a lot of good, you know, there was, there was always a lot of good relationship on the, on the movie studio side of things. And I don't, you know, if you remember on Atari Lynx, um, you know, we had, Batman and you know and, and a couple other movie properties that that showed up on on links like Bill and Ted and stuff like that you know I, I mean I got to give you know I got to give credit to to John Scratch and and his guys managing you know the relationship with Rebellion and um, uh, uh, Jason and Chris Kingsley um, you know who were a relatively little studio at the time um, but you know, uh, a shout out goes to them because Battlezone that they did for for PSVR and you know is is one of the earliest you know VR games um, right now is is one of my favorite VR games still. Um, you know, but but doggone it, those guys did such an amazing job. Um, the audio team in in um, Sunnyvale, uh, uh, James Grunky and you know and and the guys that that did the just the sound effects and the you know and the the background sounds and the breaking you know the breaking of bones and, and and all of that are all of the things that that you know did such a fantastic job of contributing to the to the creepiness of that game. Oh, it was a really uh, scary game, actually. I thought. Yeah. Exactly. You know. So. And it was a system seller as well. I mean, you know, I I knew kids at school that wanted a Jag just to play that game because it looked so good. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, and and the whole you know the amazing part about it was that was the beginning of the Alien versus Predator franchise, yeah. right? You know, which which still holds up. You know, which still holds up today. Well, were there any unreleased titles that have been in development for the Jaguar that kind of went by the wayside that you remember? Yeah, frankly, at this point, I you know there's there's a lot of there's there were a lot of titles that still get talked about on the message boards and, and things like that. Um, you know, Varunas forces was, was a title that I was very much look, looking forward, you know, forward to, um, there were a couple other, you know, a couple other racing games and, and the wings, uh, miracle designs had already started, um, on a, you know, started on kind of a sequel to, you know, to Atari carts, um, you know that that would have been cool if if that would have would have been released. 
oh gosh, I feel bad because I can't remember the name of it, but um, the the space game that um, uh, Scott Legrand eventually did release, right? You know, so it got released after you know after yeah, the yeah. fact, but you know, and 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 that you know, there's one where as as Atari was winding down and you know selling. Um, you know, selling the IP to um, to Hasbro back in the day. You know, it was Leonard Trammell that was instrumental in in getting all of the necessary IP released into the public domain, so that um, you know, so that those games and so that all of the homebrew stuff for the Jaguar could you know could be done. Um, but you know, I, I at the time I had introduced Leonard to Scott Legrand. And, you know, Leonard was the guy that was gracious enough to to make all the you know, make all basically what what is known now as the Jaguar homebrew scene, um, you know, exist, be able to happen legally. Well, I've been uh, collecting for the Jag for a couple of years now. It's, in fact, you know, the only system I really collect for. Um, and I did get a game that's kind of a bit of a holy grail for Jaguar collectors recently. And that was um, Atari Karts. Um, which is actually pretty expensive now. I think I got mine for about 150 pounds off eBay. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> I haven't told my wife that, but yeah, <laughs> I've yeah. listened to this. Um, but what was kind of the background on that? I mean, I imagine it was you know response to um, Mario Kart on the on the snares, but that was you know really interesting concept. Having even the naming, the fact that it was called Atari Karts. Well, yeah, and and, and from a from a tech standpoint, um, uh, Philip Haukeet and and Peter Vermeulen at, at Miracle Designs. Um, you know, had gotten their, their dev kit and just, you know, kind of seeing what it could do and seeing how much they could stretch the, you know, the capabilities. And they sent over, um, they sent over to, to Jay Patton and I, a, um, mode seven emulator, um, that, that essentially emulated the super NES mode seven graphics and, you know, on, on Jaguar, which which everybody looked at and was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, we think we could kind of do a combination of F-Zero and, and Mario Kart, right? And um, and that's that's really kind of how the spec of the game, you know, came to be. Um, it, I, I, I think I can take credit for it being my idea to sort of incorporate Bentley Bear and, and try to kind of pull some of the other Atari IP, you know, in, into the game. Um, and, you know, we, we did a couple, you know, a couple different treatments on, you know, on the characters and, and thought, you know, keep it, you know, keep it kind of cutesy. And, you know, we, we had already done, you know, we'd already had Doom going um, that, that introduced Atari to, um, um, to, to Joseph Lieberman. Um, you know, and, and, and sort of the beginnings of, you know, of the ESRB and ESA back, back in the day. So Atari cart wanted to be a very, very family, you know, family friendly, you know, kind of E for everyone game. And, um, but you know, uh, the guys at, at Miracle Designs built it and not only did mode seven, but did mode seven with undulating, uh, terrain, which mode seven didn't support um so it was kind of like mode seven plus which was was pretty cool we're talking of technical achievements on the jaguar i mean did you um did you ever use the jag vr oh yeah absolutely well at 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 the very very first e3 is where where that debuted and um you know and and uh you know that was based on um you know the virtuality jonathan waldern 
concept of, of being able to do VR. Um, and it, it was actually, it worked surprisingly, surprisingly well. Um, and again, if you kind of think about the way that the LED tracking, um, you know, worked on, on Jaguar VR, um, look how long it took for VR to, to actually catch up. Right. Um, you know, so it was, it, it, you know, again, kind of, you know, even that, that aspect of it was, was way before its time. Well, with these technical achievements and the really good port of Doom and uh, games like Atari Karts, it did kind of feel like the Jaguar was really kind of finding its stride around that time. But did the market performance and sales of the Jaguar disappoint the team? Depending on who you talk to, you know, every, everybody has sort of their different, you know, different reasons for why, you know, why the Jaguar wasn't as successful as it could have been. Um, my my personal take was was that if if I could do it all again, I might have held off probably the three months that it might have taken to the, uh, to fix the one the one bug in the Tom chip that did make it kind of difficult for for a lot of developers was the fact that the jump instruction was a little bit broken. And it's why guys like John Carmack had to write their own compiler to swap code in and out of out of the Tom chip, because it, my recollection was that if you if you executed a jump instruction when the the program counter was inside Jaguar memory inside the Tom memory and you jumped to an external memory location, and then you returned the internal memory location, you didn't necessarily land at the same address space that you would expect. But what you could do is you could use the blitter on Tom to blit in blocks of code really fast into the Tom chip. So that was kind of the, the workaround. So, so that was one of the quirks that my recollection was the developers complained the most about, mm-hmm. right? But frankly, I think the other thing that probably affected Jaguar more than anything else was the fact that due to manufacturing issues that that we had with IBM, um, you know, the, the whole goal of Jaguar was to build it in the United States, and it was basically built by IBM's Lexmark division. They had some some serious issues kind of getting, you know, getting everything going, and you know the, the the thing that i remember was that there was a well more than 100,000 unit order to walmart that we missed because ibm didn't deliver and and i'm sure that engineers at ibm would you know on the you know on the manufacturing side would blame atari you know because oh this wasn't as manufacturable as it should be you know whatever right i mean that's you know it's always finger pointing but the bottom line is is you miss a purchase order with walmart and you you don't deliver it on time they cancel the po even with the little you know with the little bug that i complain about in the tom chip um, had had Jaguar shipped at Walmart for that first critical Christmas season, you know, would would things have played out differently? I don't know. And I guess that you really know. that really did affect it then. I mean, the console market was so 
oversaturated at that point, wasn't it? There was a new machine coming along every six months. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and PlayStation, you know, and, and at that point in the U.S., um, you know, rumors were of, you know, PlayStation over in Japan. And, and nobody knew exactly how quickly Sony would get PlayStation from Japan over to the U.S., right? You know, nobody really realized at that point that it was going to be a full 12 months before PlayStation landed in the U.S., um, so yeah, it, it was, it was just kind of a, a hot mess in the market in terms of consoles. I mean, just as we wind up the Jaguar story, Bill, because I know you're a bit pressed for time, but I mean, you and the guys from Exitari Workers did actually work on kind of the spiritual successor to the Jaguar on the, the new one, um, which was an interesting concept. How, how did you get involved in that? And for people that might not know, what was the new oh, one well, all about? Yeah. So, so as, as, you know, at, at the time it was called Project X. And, you know, this was a couple of years after I, you know, had, had left Atari and was, was already at Sony. And, um, you know, Richard Miller had, you know, had started up VM Labs. Um, you know, the, the product was just called Project X at the time. Um, we knew that, you know, the, the, the world knew that Jeff Minter was probably going to be doing a game for it, which, which would be pretty cool. But the con, you know, but the other really, really important part about it was the notion of DVD was was like in its infancy, right? And and even to some extent, there were competing DVD formats um, that that were still sort of being worked their way through from Sony. You know, so Sony had their format. You know, that was essentially an extended version of CD. Um, uh, Toshiba and Warner Brothers were promoting what would become the DVD standard. Um, there was a company, a company called Divix, not to be confused with the file, comp- you know, with the streaming compression format Divix. Mm-hmm. There was a, a company called Divix that wanted to do their version of um, disposable disposable discs that you could basically rent a movie and then throw the disc out because it could only be played once and, and things like that. Um, so in the consumer electronics space, it was, it was very interesting. I had been working at Sony for a couple of years at that point, had, had gotten to know what it was like, you know, working for a Japanese consumer electronics manufacturer. The thing that was interesting about VM labs was that this was going to be, a interactive, you know, a, a processor that you would replace your Zoran or C-Cube um, video decoder, um, you know, in, in a DVD player that you were building that would also be able to do very good DVD playback, be able to do um, advanced fast forward and rewind. I mean, the thing that was kind of remarkable about VM Labs new on equipped DVD players was that you could do like super slow mo and you could um, for DVD players at that time to be able to play at 1.5x speed with pitch corrected fast forwarded audio was was an amazing kind of thing that that it's it's interesting because in the streaming space, everybody has kind of abandoned a bunch of those really amazing features that Nuon had. And, and a lot of those features that Nuon had would work streaming content like Netflix, right? So imagine if, if Netflix allowed you to do a fast, smooth shuttle forward or rewind so that when you skipped a spot or you wanted to, you know, to watch it again, be able to, to do that. So 
so again, VM Labs is kind of way ahead of its time, but the interactivity of it was was pretty cool too, you know. And um, you know, we we wound up doing Merlin Racing, which was the sort of spiritual successor of Atari Karts. You know, Jeff did another version of VLM, you know, the the virtual light machine yeah. that was was just incredible. Um, you know, and, and the games that we wound up doing for it actually stood the test of time for over six months that I paid attention to as as VM Labs had gotten sold to Genesis Microchip and was basically out of the Nuon business. Um, Nuon DVD players actually did continue to sell and the software for them continued to sell for over six months at places like Best Buy. You know, which which was a testament to the developers that made those games and and the the capability that it had. You know, but but back in that day, the idea was that a DVD player that you bought from Toshiba and a DVD player that you bought from Samsung, and a DVD player maybe that you bought from RCA, should all be able to play the same interactive content. You know, which which is weird because it's a place that the video game industry still seeks to get to. Um, you know, in the meantime, Microsoft is still making their own thing, and Nintendo's still making their own thing, and Sony is still making their own thing. And I was pleased recently that Jeff did a new version of Tempest for the the PlayStation Four as well, because not many people have played Tempest Three Thousand on the new one, but it was such a good game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we had a go with Jeff's um, homemade rotary controller, yeah. which was so cool. <laughs> and then I, I just actually bought a couple months ago one of the one of the rotary controllers that one of the guys on Facebook, um, you know, is selling. So you can actually buy a rotary controller for Tempest um, today for I think it's like seventy dollars, which is right in the ballpark of you know a game controller for you know for a regular console still. That works fantastic with Tempest, so so that, that was that was really fun to find and got me playing Tempest again. <laughs> have you have you still got a Jaguar then, and do you play that at all? Um, yeah, on and off. I I mean I've got the HD. So you know for for the Jaguar, there's an HDMI adapter that plugs into the you know into the video connector port on the back of it. Um, you know, and, and again, we talked earlier about the fact that it's incredible that people are making software for it. Yeah. It's incredible that people are still manufacturing peripherals for it, right? There's a new Pro Controller coming, I saw, the other day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm dying to see one of those. Excellent, Bill. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your memories with us this week. What, what are you up to these days if uh, people want to keep in touch and find out what you're up to? Oh, yeah. So, so um, my uh, sort of main task right now is working with a company called Gameface Labs that's over in, you know, based over in the UK. And we are using the NVIDIA uh, Tegra TX2 SoC um, in a standalone VR AR headset that will be affordable, um, should be available for developers right around the first of the year, uh, commercial product for holiday 2019. And, um, uh, you know, the, the cool part about it is you can either use the Game Face Labs, um, uh, Game Face Labs headset, or we're going to be supporting different um, VR and and AR for tabletop, you know, tabletop gaming kind of experiences. Um, but it is by far the most powerful Android, um, you know, Android gaming system on the planet, and um, and it's it's coming along, you know, slowly but surely. But um, you know, we're we're making good strides and have. Uh, 
you know, about a dozen different development teams lined up for it right now that I'm hoping to be able to announce uh, around GDC next year. Right, Bill. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to oh, you. Thank and, uh, you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll stay in touch and we, we can't wait to see what you do next. All right. Excellent. Thanks so much. 